0: Christian, what do you believe? Ah, oh, no takers, okay. That was a test to see how pious you were. Uh, we, we say this before we recite various creeds, like the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and others. Christian, what, what do you believe? Now, I think what we really should say is, Christian, why do you believe? You know, not in the sense of what logical reasons can you give, but rather, why is believing something we do in the first place? Or, or what about, Christian, how do you believe? That might work. Not in the sense of, that's so unbelievable, how can you believe that? But in what manner, to what end do you believe? You know, Christians don't really ask these kinds of questions. We believe certain things. We try to get others to believe them. We even identify ourselves as believers. But what's so great about believing after all? I'm serious. I mean, what what work is our believing meant to do both in us, but also in the world. Do we believe because truths are out there and it's better to know them than to not? Do we believe just to secure eternal life? Heaven, not hell someday? Or do we believe for some other reason? One that's rarely named, but which is utterly, utterly vital. Friends, our believing is for a very, very particular purpose. It's a purpose Paul describes in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Christian, why do you believe? In what manner, to what end do you believe? Well, I believe so that I'll live like Jesus. That's Why? What I mean is that we believe not to make us more or less lovable to God, we believe not to make us feel secure in here when everything out there is changing, no. We believe not to invalidate science, reason, or critical thinking, not to stand out in the world, to monopolize the truth, no. We believe for one reason and one reason only. That is to make us live like Jesus. If you don't end up living like Jesus, why bother believing any of these things? I'm serious. Friends, beliefs are for something. And only when that something is present can our beliefs be said to be healthy. That is what I'm here to talk about this morning. So in just a moment, uh, I'm going to introduce to you first Timothy, the letter that we'll be looking at today. I'll talk about its timing, its occasion, and themes, and then we'll dive into our particular text for this morning. But before we do either, let's take a moment to pray. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are here to have your word fed to us. I pray, Lord, that you would speak. I Thank you for these people, for their patience, for their grace. Thank you for your graciousness in allowing us to fumble our way toward you. I pray, Lord, that through this time we would become more like you, that we'd be your hands and feet. We love you, Lord, and pray that you would be with us as we walk through this remarkable text together. In Jesus' name, amen. So 1 Timothy, uh, if you don't know, is the first of three letters which comprise what we call the pastoral epistles in our New Testament. And so we've been skating through the Pauline epistles, the letters written by the Apostle Paul, uh, and we've got just three left. So 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. They won't be in that order. Now now Paul, as we read of in Acts, uh, ultimately went to Rome where he was imprisoned, and that's kind of where Acts ends. But it seems, based on evidence, that Paul was released from that first imprisonment. And so from Rome he went to a variety of places around the Mediterranean, places where he'd planted churches, and maybe some places where he hadn't. And Timothy, it seems, is with him the entire time. So as they're ambling about, uh, they go through Ephesus, the big city of Ephesus where Paul had established a church. But Paul then leaves to go to Macedonia, and he leaves the young Timothy in charge in Ephesus. Now, Paul didn't know if this would be permanent or temporary, but as he's leaving, he entrusts this task of ministry to a young Timothy. And so as Paul is traveling, he writes to Timothy, likely in response to actual questions and issues that were going on, and that is what we find in 1 Timothy. Uh, We'll see in a few weeks that Paul writes another letter to Timothy that takes on a different tone in between that. Mike will preach on the letter to Titus. So these are the pastoral epistles. Now this letter, 1 Timothy, consists of six chapters. It's pretty long. And it mostly has to do with combating or navigating false teaching that was present in Ephesus. So in the first chapter, Paul directly charges Timothy to oppose or combat false teaching In chapter 2, he talks about uh, the ministries of prayer and teaching in in the church in this context. And then we get this famous passage uh, laying out qualifications for leaders in the church at Ephesus. After this, in chapter 4, Paul gives Timothy some specific instructions and charges to various groups in the church, widows, younger women, older men, and so forth. And then in chapter 6, we get some concluding exhortations, some last words, at least Paul thought they might be at that time. It's in that concluding chapter that our passage this morning falls. And so if you haven't turned there, friends, would you now turn with me? 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy 6, we're going to start in the middle of verse 2 should make sense if you have an ESV Bible, and before I read, I I would invite you, as you are able, to stand with me for the reading of God's Word, as you are able. 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting at verse 2b, teach and urge these things. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. You may be seated. This short section, which looks back on the letter as a whole, and kind of summarizes Paul's argument thus far, can be broken up Yes, into three sections. Three sections, all right. First, we see in the second half of verse 2, a command to Timothy, an overarching command. And then in verses 3 through 4a, we get a warning, which as we'll see is related to the command. We get a warning about what these false teachers were like. This wasn't enough, though. In the third section, verses four B through five, we get a further description of exactly what these people are like, exactly what the teaching that Timothy is to oppose, against which his ministry is to contrast, exactly what that is like. The main idea, friends, in this passage, and I think you could argue the main idea of First Timothy is that Timothy is to teach and preach. In other words, Timothy is to minister in a way that is aligned with the heart of Jesus, that is aligned with the interests, the the desires, the dreams of Jesus, and that is deliberately aimed at godliness. Godliness. Timothy's ministry is to be aligned with the heart of Jesus and is to be in service of producing godly people. Okay. That is the main idea that I'd like to present for you all this morning. So let's just dive in with Paul's command in verse 2. Paul begins by saying, these things, the first word in Greek, these things, whatever they are, Timothy, you are to preach or teach regularly, consistently, and exhort or urge. Now, first, let's deal, with, let's deal with the verbs, okay? We've got two verbs here. We have teach, and I think in the ESV, it says urge. This first verb is the verb didasco, where we get our word didactic in English. And so this is a very formal Um, structured, almost catechetical, you think of catechesis in the Catholic Church. Very, very repetitive, cumulative instruction that is meant to teach people something that they remember and build upon, teaching. Along with this, though, we get this verb, parakaleo, where we get the word paraclete, paraclete men's ministries that we talk about. The is is to come alongside. The Holy Spirit is called the paraclete. It is to uh, exhort in a more personal way. It is to take the, the kind of cerebral teaching that Paul had just commanded in this first word, to take that that's here maybe, and to get it here. To, to apply it to real life. to to preach it, to to urge it, to exhort it. So we have teach and preach these things. Now, it's hard to know exactly what these things refers to, but I think uh, that it's likely that Paul is referring to everything he's said thus far in the letter. He's concluding the letter, he's looking back, and he's saying, Timothy, in your ministry, you are to regularly teach and regularly preach everything I have told you in this letter, but also in our relationship together. What what he is telling Timothy is that his ministry is to look a certain way. Teaching and preaching together, I think, constitute what we would call ministry, especially in this context, pastoral ministry. So that is the command. These things, Timothy, you are to regularly, continuously, faithfully teach and preach. Well, next, though, we get a warning. Like I said, there was false teaching going on in Ephesus. It was a major problem, as it was basically everywhere else in the Mediterranean world. And so we get this warning about persons, leaders, teachers who are toxic, he says to Timothy, if anyone, verse 3, if anyone teaches a different doctrine, if, if anyone teaches differently, this is one word, it's hetero, it's one word, it's other teaching, different teaching. If anyone teaches differently than the type of ministry that I'm commanding you, namely, if if they do not attend to Occupy themselves with the sound or healthy words of our Lord Jesus, and if if they're not occupied with teaching that accords with or results in godliness, such people are puffed up and without understanding. Puffed up and without understanding. As we look at this, I want you to remember that this does not only function as a warning for Timothy of which persons to avoid. In the converse, it also tells us something about how Timothy was to act in his ministry. We can kind of reason backwards. So first, the the, the people who are toxic, these false teachers in Ephesus... The way to identify them is to look for people whose teaching had slid away from or or was distanced from the the words and ideas of Jesus. Friends, I can think of far too many people in my life who stopped attending a church because the, the preacher, the pastor... Stop talking about Jesus. I'm sure you could think of such stories. Maybe you have such stories. The the first mark of toxic teaching, toxic ministry is, is distance from the heart of Jesus. You, you you stop hearing the words of Jesus, the interests, the references to Jesus' heart and ideals and it slides away. There's an adjective here to describe the words of Jesus, and in the ESV, that adjective is sound. But there should be a footnote in some of your versions. Number two, it can also be translated healthy. Now, this is actually a medical term in Greek. It's common in the medical literature of the time. And it literally refers to a body, an organism, that is without disease, that's in good health, that is uh, functioning, that, that is not sick. When we think of soundness, referred, referring to teaching or theology, we often think of just correctness, sound doctrine. It's, it's, it's static, it's fixed, it's true. But, but this word, healthy, has to do with a human body that was without disease, that was in good shape, so that it could live and do things. The words of Jesus, which even that could mean the the concepts of Jesus, the ideas, the values of Jesus, are described here as healthy. And I want you to keep that image of a healthy body in mind as we move on. So so the people that Timothy is to avoid are those whose teaching gets more and more distanced from the words and values of Jesus. They don't attend to the healthy words of Jesus, and they do not teach in a way that is purposed for godliness. That's the second aspect of this verse. Now, I think this is huge, friends. I think this is absolutely huge. You can imagine teaching for its own sake. Information, knowledge, theology, doctrine, beliefs, positions, all for their own sake, to to secure truth, to to safeguard some body of information. And and as you look inward and focus on the teaching and the preaching for its own sake and you're distanced from the, the heart of Jesus you're not focused on producing godly people. That's what these teachers in Ephesus were doing. Their teaching was sliding away from Christ's heart and, and thus became less and less interested with producing godliness among the listeners. Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, Again, he doesn't know if these would be his last words. Teach and urge these things, or minister in this way, namely, in a way that is always aligned with the heart of Jesus, and in a way that is always in service of godliness. Some of you have journeyed with me this year in a course, Theology the Basics. It's been a great chance to. Uh, Look through some of the historic tenets of Christian belief. But from the beginning of this course, back in February, I made clear that theology is not about amassing, collecting, and securing all these truths that we can hoard, that make us more valuable to God. Theology is, is about making us live like Jesus, The way that we think about God, what we say about God, has a real impact on the world, on our life. And so that is the sort of teaching that Paul commands Timothy of here. He's to avoid teaching that looks inward. The last section in verses 4 through 5 further describe these toxic leaders in Ephesus. And we get some pretty vivid Terminology here. This person is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. I should note that that should remind you of a passage in 1 Corinthians 8, which we've talked about. It says that knowledge puffs up, whereas love builds up. Knowledge for its own sake inflates the teacher like a balloon, doing no actual good, whereas love builds things, builds communities, it builds networks, builds a family. So the teachers that are toxic are are puffed up, self-absorbed, inflating, understands nothing. Going on in verse 4b, it says that these people have an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words. Literally, they they are sickened. We get another medical term here. They have become diseased by debates and arguments and controversies. They've become sick over it. And they fight word battles, literally is what it says. Sword fights with words. From from this situation emerges several things. This, This type of teaching doesn't just affect the teacher, But as we'll see, it affects the community. This situation produces envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people, it says, who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. The idea is, friends, that this type of teaching that is distanced from the heart of Christ it is not about producing people who look like Christ. It turns inward on itself. It inflates, and it is fundamentally antisocial. It destroys and degrades the community, does not edify or build it up. It produces controversies, arguments, sword fights with words, evil suspicions among the community, constant friction. In verse 5, we get strong language. It says constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. This again is in that kind of medical metaphor where something has become so diseased that it is beyond recovery. Paul says to Timothy that if this teaching goes unchecked, if it continually turns inward upon itself and is not serving the pursuit of godliness, it will become so toxic that it is beyond recovery. He concludes by saying such persons imagine, they actually imagine that godliness is a means of gain. The next few verses flesh this out in greater detail. The gain that Paul is speaking of here in the first century is probably financial gain, for the most part. But I think that this idea of ministering for gain can be expanded beyond mere financial or monetary gain. We can think of social gain, forming a reputation, a kind of famous personality, where people fawn over you, people follow you, You can think of major, famous leaders within Christianity who have gained socially and, in many cases, financially. You can think of cultural gain, gaining cultural standing, stability in society as an institution, something that people respect, to to minister in a way that Christianity is taken seriously in the culture in a way that's far different from the culture of the martyrs in the first centuries? I don't think this just means financial gain. I can think of people who have become so interested in teaching and in knowledge, in winning debates for its own sake, they're gaining this reputation as someone who speaks the truth, who stands firm, who says it like it is, black and white. And they're gaining and they're gaining. They're forgetting the purpose of teaching, theology of all of it. Paul tells Timothy, oppose such people. Distance yourself from them. Contrast your ministry with theirs. The idea is, friends, riffing off the title of this sermon, but healthy theology is theology which produces healthy or healing, healing lives. Now, this past week, I had the privilege of virtually attending the Center for Pastor Theologians annual conference, they're based out of Oak Park, Illinois, near Chicago. Um, and the theme for the conference this year was Reconstructing Evangelicalism. Now, Evangelicalism, if you don't know, uh, is this cross-denominational movement within Christianity that emerged from the fundamentalist movement in the early 20th century. And as of late, some brands of evangelicalism have become led astray, I would say corrupted, by certain sociocultural economic forces. As I listened to all these speakers and pastors and theologians speaking about the ills of evangelicalism, all of these speakers identified themselves as evangelical, by the way asking questions of can this be reconstructed, salvaged, or do we have to start from scratch? I'm hearing these descriptions of what is wrong with American evangelicalism, and friends, I couldn't help but think of Paul's words here. Have we become so concerned with beliefs with theology, with orthodoxy, that we've forgotten its true purpose? H- have we become so concerned with preserving the truth and, and standing firm that we've traded Christ for Christianity? that we've traded an organic and living movement of disciples for a cultural establishment, an institution. Friends, beliefs, theology, orthodoxy, all of it, it exists for a particular purpose. Like I said, it's not to make us more or less lovable to God, not to just get us into heaven And it's not to help us feel intellectually safe and secure as everything in the world changes. It's not it. These things exist for one reason and one reason only. And that is to make us live, live, actually live like Jesus. Paul tells Timothy here that the only ministry that's worth doing... The only ministry worth doing is that which is aimed at real godliness, at Christ-likeness. Any ministry whose focus is elsewhere, Paul says, is unhealthy, it's toxic, it is even false. As we seek to apply the truth of the gospel to our lives, which I hope we are seeking to do, We need to ask ourselves a few questions, I think. We need to ask of beliefs, positions, tenets of faith, does this belief, does this position, does it result in godliness? Does believing this thing make me resemble Jesus? Or is it just there to make me feel secure or in control or more valued? perhaps, than others. Healthy beliefs and healthy theology is healthy for the same reason a body is healthy. A body, friends, is healthy not to just sit still, not to sit in some storage room to be protected and safeguarded. A body is healthy so that it can live so that it can act, and so that it can love. Theology does work in the world. I'm convinced of this. What we believe, what we think, what we say, it has a concrete impact on the world around us. Do your beliefs and positions help you live like Jesus? Or do you find that sometimes they actually get in the way? As you seek to live out the gospel, friends, in every area of your lives, remember that healthy beliefs should make us look and live like Christ. Let's pray. Lord, through everything we learn, everything we study, everything we hear, every belief we commit to, every position we hold, I pray that we would always be thinking of godliness. That we would always be thinking of becoming people who out there outside these doors are actually living like Jesus. Lord, I'm so encouraged by this community, this local church, and how time and again, when I see them, I see Jesus. I see you, Lord. I pray that you would keep us on this course, that you'd help us to speak prophetically, not predictively, but prophetically, to expose your views on any kind of ministry that is going astray from that. We love you, Lord, and we pray that you would please just form us, form us into truly godly people. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.